hello and welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I'm your host, Sean Needham, and I am streaming by myself along with uh, Sean Kelly today. He is the um, founder and managing partner of Texas Texas Medical Management and Free and and um, Surgery Center, correct? Is that correct, Sean? It's Texas Medical Management, and we ha- we offer free market surgery as one of our okay, and yeah. awesome. And I'm excited. That I I discussed with you some of the background of the company and these free market surgery centers and just free market medicine is popping up all over the nation now. And you're going to discuss a little bit of your history of your company and how it got started and why it got started. So um, you know you you don't want to miss this because. Um, Sean is going to talk about how his company, his company can save patients thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars on procedures um, and surgeries and get better quality and better service. So, Sean, without further ado, welcome to our show and tell us your story. Thank you, Sean. Thank you. Uh, and please tell Janet, thank you for uh, having me. Yes, I will. So just just to clarify up front, I think uh, there's uh the free market medical movement has is pretty young, and so the language around it is still in its formative stages. Uh, once this gets to be a blip on the radar of healthcare in the U.S. in terms of size, it'll, I think it'll solidify in something. But uh, some people refer to it as free market medicine. That's Dr. Keith Smith and and others that really have been the leaders in the vanguard of this uh, since the you know probably the last twelve years or so. Uh, mostly from Oklahoma, but then there's also what we call direct care or direct contracting. Uh, if you're a self-funded employer and you're going to direct contract with a provider for those services for your members, direct contracting or direct care, direct primary care is an example of that, uh-huh. where you're you the person are paying directly or your employer is paying directly for a new type of uh, healthcare where there is no longer this big intermediary between the providers of the care and the people who receive it. And so just just a point of clarification. And so uh, our company, uh, my experience was I was an entrepreneur for for most of my career, uh, a lot of time spent in Latin America. Uh, then I was in the marine transportation industry, bought and sold some companies in that. And then uh, I'd spent uh, about five years in uh, South America. Uh, as a partner at a company that that was in the oil patch, I uh, got run out. Of, my little brother was finishing his medical training, so he was 38 years old when he finished, and he's a craniofacial surgeon, which is a way of saying a pediatric plastic surgeon. These are people that don't do cosmetic things; they really do like big reconstructions of people that have either congenital or acquired deformations. And so he, we'd all gone. He and my sister and I. Uh, had all gone to UT, University of Texas at Austin. And so uh, he was working a deal with the system there. Anyway, long story short, we ended up coming to Austin and I helped build out not only his program, which is a multidisciplinary program, um, but also uh, the pediatric surgical subspecialist there at uh, what is now Dell Children's in Austin. So in the nine years I was there, I learned a whole lot about what's going on behind the scenes. Well, that taught me a whole lot about where the systems and the insurance companies were working in cahoots to push prices higher. Well, I guess it's really just cost higher. And there really wasn't much of, of an effort to, to try to manage. 
And so in surgery, the vast majority of the money goes to the systems. It goes to the facilities. It's 85% of it goes, uh, only 7% makes it to the surgeon. And so uh, both my brother and I, we knew that uh, right now the insurance companies don't pay any differential for quality uh, in terms of surgical quality. So what we did was uh, we came up with the idea of like, let's, let's pay good surgeons who are high quality. And we have a methodology and I'll explain that a little later, but how we get to quality. And then we identify those quality surgeons and then we partner with those quality surgeons for, to do surgical cases. And then what we do is we partner also with the facilities. Now on the facility side, we're obviously getting a better bargain than the insurance companies do. And that's primarily because we know facilities so well. Um, we will negotiate to a point where we absolutely know that they're making a profit, but uh, they're not taking 85 cents of all the dollars. So we started this company with the idea, a simple, simple low hanging fruit was, there's a whole lot of surgery that was being done inside hospitals, which are very expensive. They don't need to be done there. They could have been done in surgery centers. And so uh, all the people that work in the surgery center industry know this, but people still get pulled into these big system funnels where the surgeons work for the system. The system prioritizes surgeries going into a funnel into a very expensive hospital. And in many cases, these systems don't even own uh, ambulatory surgery centers. And so that was kind of our low hanging fruit. We knew we could improve surgical quality and we knew we could cut cost by just moving the cases out of the hospital. Since that time, we've done a whole lot of other things, reducing the cost of implants, um, reducing the variation in, in cost uh, for complex patients, like patients that are, have, uh, let's say, hypertension or diabetes and need to be taken care of in a surgical hospital versus a hospital uh, versus a uh, an, an ambulatory surgery center. So we built this company with the idea that uh, in, in kind of a real broad strokes, today we don't believe that the current healthcare finance system, which is insurance companies partnering with employers and that transfer of funds then gets divided up into payments to providers downstream for care delivered. We don't believe that that system produces the quality outcomes that it ought. And so our hypothesis on this is that if we can, it tortures the doctors, it tortures the patients. And there's a lot of people that are in there that are making a whole lot of money. And so what we set out to do was to improve quality, reduce cost and improve service quality. Because I think everybody would agree service quality in healthcare has not really been a focus. In fact, most of us know of, and can count how many times we've been to the doctor and we've been very unsatisfied. If it's just sitting in the waiting room with a bunch of sick people for three hours waiting with old magazines, that's just part of it. But there's a whole lot of that and more. And so what we did was uh, we, we, we met Dr. Keith Smith in 2016, uh, went up to Oklahoma, uh, we cold called him first and he said, I'll help you in any way I can. Uh, I want to see this model spread and I'm surprised it hasn't. So we went up to meet him. Fortunately, he dissuaded us from building a surgery center that we had plans to do. He told us that we would fight uh, the uh, BUCA. BUCA is Blue Cross United, Cigna, Aetna, the big insurance carriers. 
we would fight them tooth and nail just to survive. So started the company uh, out of the gate. Uh, he told us that there's not many people buying uh, bundled surgery. So what we do is, you know, we negotiate with the surgeon. We get pay the surgeon a lot more. We tell him we're going to pay him immediately or within seven days. Anesthesia is quite easy. It's a time-based uh, payment. And then the facility we negotiate. Our surgeon has the ultimate decision on whether or not he will operate on any given patient and whether he'll operate in any facility. And so then what we did was we sat down with the surgeons and we have, we called these the deep eddy sessions. So if you're not familiar with it, deep eddy makes vodka. <laughs> oh, <laughs> dang, I'm not familiar. <laughs> they, they make a lemon vodka that is like out of this world. And so we mixed that with Topo Chico and bought pizza and we sat in front of a, a whiteboard <laughs> in a conference room and we built bundles. And it was really, we asked the surgeon, you know, uh, Mike Yim, he's an ENT. Hey, Mike, we know you get a great outcomes out of your sinus surgery. Kind of walk us through what you need. I need, you know, an endoscope, a diagnostic endoscope. I made an x-ray and then I'm going to need at least one pre-op visit. And it's going to be, you know, about 30 minutes. And then I'm going to need this much time in the OR. And then postoperatively, I'm going to need at least two endoscopes in office. I'm going to need four follow-up visits and so on. And so then what we did was we had a way of, of compensating the physician, the surgeon, for their time in the OR. And then additionally, we added in all those other costs. So uh, a, a payment for the uh, endoscope in the front, a payment for the, the diagnostic visit, and then all the follow-ups and anything else. And then we pay that to the surgeon almost directly after the procedure is done. And when we, when we talked to Mike, we said, you know, is there any, are there any off ramps or things that you might need for, given that a patient's a little bit different? And sometimes he'd say, yes, we say, okay, well, let's create another bundle. So we're essentially a bundle is a surgeon's protocol. And this is something that they've learned in training. Or they, and they, they may have updated a little based upon things they've learned since they finished their training. But in many cases, it's very, very tried and true. So these surgeons, this, the initial surgeons that we worked with, my brother is a reconstructive microsurgeon. And so when Mike Yim takes out a, a, a head and face or a, my facial or mouth cancer, like throat, uh -huh. and there's quite a bit of that right now. Uh, a lot of it's tied to HPV. Uh, virus. And so uh, what he'll do is, is Mike Yim will come in and do the resection. So he'll take out like this whole part of the face and the tongue and larynx and everything. And so the person obviously can't live like that. But my brother will come in and take rib and hip. I mean, not hip, but femur and um, uh, different parts of bone and material and skin and grafts and muscle and fat from all over the body to rebuild that. He rebuilds the tongue, he rebuilds the nose, the lips, everything. And so the patient then is able to live well. I mean, they're a little disfigured, of course, but they function. They can eat and talk. It's amazing. Right. And so in, in, he did these kinds of cases with orthopedists, with spine surgeons, with ENTs, with general surgeons, and so on. And so in his uh, practice, he learned which surgeons were really good surgeons. And then there were some obviously he came across that he wouldn't operate with again for, for quality reasons. And so that was the kind of list that he had uh, for family and friends that they called and said, hey, I think my kid needs to see an ENT or my primary care doctor said he needs to see an ENT. Who do you recommend? And then he said, well, you need to go see Mike Young. He's phenomenal. 
Okay, so great. That's how we started. That was like firsthand knowledge by a very good surgeon of other surgeons. That's a little bit unique. And so that's how we first started. And we build these bundles. And then what we said was, uh, well, we went to the facilities, we negotiated that price, we did any implants or any type of sterile supplies, anything. So everything that was going to be required to get the outcome, we contracted with all the different parties. And we're a provider organization. So we're a medical organization, medical practice, uh, licensed and certified by the Texas Medical Board. And so under that auspices, we contracted with all the providers and then built the bundle. And only when we were sure that we had all the costs nailed down, did we post the bundle. And so what we do is we add a margin on top of that. And then we provide a concierge service on the front end. And then our clinical operations are run by a, a gentleman who has been a surgical nurse for 20 years, uh, who knows the insides and outs of all the OR and everything very, very well. And so, um, that's kind of the, the, the history of the, the, the surgical bundles. And we really formed the company. And I'll get back to this because this is the overarching message that I want people to know. Is that ultimately, the current system beats up the doctor in terms of like, you're only going to get $35 to see that patient. So then the doctor is obviously going to spend five minutes, right? 10 minutes, maybe. They can't spend 30 minutes of their time for $35. That, they would go out of business, right? Uh, and they have to have a nurse and an MA and medical assistant and all this other stuff and plus offices and everything else. So it doesn't make sense. And so it puts them in a really a financial situation that it causes what we call moral hazard. So they're making decisions that have an impact on care based on the finances that they're receiving. So that's why primary care doctors spend five minutes with patients if they spend five. So we felt like our hypothesis was that's broken. How do we fix it? So what we came up with as a hypothesis was if you could fix that part of medicine, the rest would take care of itself. So if you, if you gave doctors the kind of compensation for their time and resources to do the job that they were trained to do and do well, despite the current system, then patient satisfaction would go up, quality of outcomes would go up, and costs would go down tremendously. And some of the costs are due to quality issues downstream, but a great deal of them just have to do with slowing down to speed up. So in that paradigm, we were very, you know, we're very generous, I think, uh, with the surgeons. We, we pay them very well. We pay them on time. We treat them like, like they're great partners, right? We don't constantly beat on them, trying to knock them down. Or, and there's none of this game between us of them upcoding or sending us a claim that's different than what we talked about it. We don't have authorizations or pre-authorizations you know, or anything like that. Our client relationships have done away with all that in exchange for higher quality, better service, and lower cost. And so we pass that along. So we don't have the same type of relationship. It's not a confrontational relationship. In fact, it's a very collaborative relationship. And our surgeons will come to us with suggestions for changes constantly, sometimes which reduces their income, but improves the patient's outcome. And so, uh, well, I, I, what I was gonna just tie up the, the surgical part of this is, is, is 
what we ultimately provide for patients, if they come to us through their employer or one of the intermediaries for the employer, and they come into our, uh, our, our company or our program that way, or whether they're just seeing our website and they're a person that doesn't have insurance or has a really high deductible and can save a lot of money. However, they come to us, each and every person is a patient first. They have a problem. I mean, Sean, you're, you're a provider, right? So you understand providers, doctors, pharmacists, nurses, therapists, they didn't get into healthcare and spend all the years of training and suffering and cost and everything else, sacrifice, to get into this rat race of making little nickels and dimes and not being able to take care of people the way you know they need to be taken care of. So we just want to make that environment for the doctor and patient better. And I think we've achieved it. If you talk to the doctors that we work with, they, they would agree. Well, essentially what you guys have done is, I mean, you said it from the very get-go is that, you know, the doctor decides what patient to take care of, the doctor decides what facility to operate in, all that stuff. So essentially the doctor's in charge again, correct? Absolutely, 100%. And, and are you kind of saying that in a traditional model, doctors aren't in charge? Like well, in, a big, in a big hospital type system, are doctors in charge? No, I, I think I think from a, a clinical care perspective, they are. So they, they wouldn't operate in a hospital, even if it employed them, if they didn't think it were were, were safe for their patients. Um, you know, what we learned along the way was really important. So we work with a company out of Utah that uh, does uh, complications insurance, surgical complications insurance. And when we have big surgical cases for self-pay patients, we ask them to buy this kind of insurance because you know something happens and, and you're in surgeries, things happen. So uh, they had data on quality and we asked them, you know, we're, we're curious about how much the doctor has to play the facility anesthesia in terms of the quality. And they said that the, the quality data they have, which is something like 60,000 cases that they've done at this point, this is like four years ago, uh, that the correlation coefficient between the quality of the surgeon and the quality of the patient outcome was 0.94. So we asked like, well, my brother, of course, is like, duh, I'm a surgeon. I know right. surgeons are the most right. important person. And, and I said, okay, well, I knew it was really important. I just didn't know it was like that important. And so what we, I asked the follow-up question. I said, why are facilities and anesthesia not more important? And the gentleman said, you know, Sean, we, we, we asked the same question and said, it turns out really good surgeons don't operate in bad facilities, nor do they use bad anesthesia. That goes back to your point about the surgeon being in charge. So in our model, in the general model, I would say doctors, surgeons are not operating in facilities, you know, that, that they feel are unsafe. If they are, they're bad surgeons. Okay. That's just a, 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 a signal. But the facilities have less to do with the outcome. It has so much more to do with the surgical judgment because there's another problem we're not talking about, which is utilization, which is doctors operating on people that don't need an operation or maybe the cost is more than the benefit. And so we believe that you pick the high quality surgeons and those surgeons have that kind of attitude of appropriate utilization. So that's another problem that we, we, we solve by getting really good surgeons. Back to your point your question. 
I don't think really good doctors are operating in bad facilities. I feel like right now they're operating where it most benefits them or the people that are paying them. In most instances, and I worked inside a big system, we were never allowed to see on the practice side, on the doctor side, what the hospital meant because it's illegal. So, but you knew because the hospital administrators and the people on the hospital side got super giddy when you started talking about like pediatric neurosurgery, craniofacial surgery, <laughs> epilepsy surgery. You know, certain types of surgery, they'd just be like, really, we could do that here? What kind of machines do we need? And then you buy three or $4 million machines to put yeah. in the OR interoperative MRIs and stuff. And they'd be like, oh, we can bill $20,000 for that. Oh my gosh, you know? So I think everyone is responding to the doctor's needs to take care of patients. And then there's this funky rule with the government and in involvement in this industry where they just make it illegal for the doctor to know a lot of things. I'm sure on the pharmacy side, it's the same. You guys don't get to know what upstream costs are and then what the PBMs and things are doing. And so right. there's all this shadowy dealing and the in person who is delivering the care often has zero idea about how much money is going on outside of what they're getting or what they think should be. Yeah, that answer? Lack of transparency, right? Correct. Yeah. So um, basically what you get, what you are saying is that the most important part, and, and like your brother says, duh, but the most important part of a surgery is the surgeon not the facility and shocking right <laughs> exactly right it'd be like now, the most important part of a pharmacy is not the gift card aisle it's this building the pharmacist, pharmacist right, <laughs> right. right. Uh, so um tell me a little bit about how you know traditional health insurance they have preferred provider networks and literally patients are told what doctor to go to are you saying that that doctor might not be the best doctor in for that procedure? So let me just put it this way. And this this will this will be the wake up call for everybody that gets to hear this. If you look at most major metropolitan areas, 40 years ago, board certification was pretty rare. It was like the top elite people that did it. There were even general surgeons doing cardiac procedures and other types of surgeons doing, you know, outside of the, the their training, they've acquired new skills. But over the last 40 years, board certification has become the not not the the top, but it's become a, a base. So everybody is board certified or board eligible, which means you know right after training you're board eligible for a number of years before you actually get your board certification. And so the insurance networks hold that up and say, well they're board certified. Okay. Facilities do the same thing. You know, you can get credentials if you're board certified. Okay. So just chew on this a bit. 96% of all doctors in any one specialty, especially the surgical specialties, are board certified. In any major metropolitan area, 94 plus percent of board certified specialists are on the carrier networks. So let's just say it's 90% of all doctors in surgical specialties are on the carrier networks. We all know statistics. So 
let's just be positive about this and say at least 50% are above average and then the 40% are below average. So your chances of landing with a doctor that's good or average or bad, you don't know. Number one, there's no information out there. Primary care doctors don't know. They really don't. What we used to do in surgical practice, the way you satisfied a primary care doctor for a referral, you booked the patient quickly. Your waiting room was clean. You had paid parking. You took care of them in a, in a really nice way. And the doctor saw the patient and then gave them a result and sent the note back to the primary care doctor so they didn't look like an idiot when the patient showed up again. That was the measure. Whether they did a procedure or not, it really didn't matter. They would still, we'd still send the notes back. But they didn't know what they were looking at. They didn't know whether or not it was good quality surgery or bad quality, the bad outcome, good outcome, or whether it even needed surgery, the patient. So I think when you get down to it, there's not enough information out there about quality. So even if we had that information, then it would still be, it would be easier, but we don't have it. So what happens is we're just a part of like this mass of people. So remember insurance networks were not built for quality. They were built for access. Right. If they were built for quality, they'd only have, you know, your, your, your plan would have like 10 pharmacists in Austin. Right. They'd be geographically diverse, but they would be like verifiably the best quality. But instead you have, 3,000. <laughs> They're all over the place. And right, nobody right. really knows. But you know what? The, the, the network said you have to check these four boxes to get in our network. And the last one of which is, will you accept our rate? That's really the most important one, right? That's right. So we always say to get into the carrier networks, you have to have a board certification, a medical license, uh, be willing to accept their rate, have an office and a pulse. Not it doesn't take a lot. No. So consumers, so, one of the things we talk about on our podcast is um, we want to educate and empower consumers to take charge of their own health. So basically what you're saying is that consumers should shop. They should shop to find the best facility, the best doctor, correct? I think they shouldn't look for the best facility. They should look for the best doctor. The best doctor. Yeah. And, and that, that happens a lot. People look at the facility, wow, it's a brand new hospital. It's great and everything. Right. Sometimes brand new hospitals are in the middle of cornfields because, well, they're brand new. And then, you know, they've got young doctors just out of training. Why? Because the practices are not busy and so on. So uh, what I would say is look for the best doctors. And here are a few things that the public can do. Okay. Uh, first, read Dr. Marty McCary's book, Unaccountable. So, He's a very good friend of ours now, but when he wrote the book, we didn't know him, uh, but I read it and I was like, that's funny. His methodology for choosing quality surgeons is exactly what we do. So after the first batch of surgeons we selected with my brother, having personal experience with him, uh, Patrick had to move back towards the hospital system. He's a, a, you know, works in the pediatric world. And so he's employed. And so uh, I think they got, a little upset with his work with us. And so we brought on uh, a, an orthopedic surgeon as our chief medical officer. And he was uh, formerly the, the chief uh, orthopedics at Baylor Scott and White system. 
and he had stepped out at the early fifties of, of that role, trying to discern what he wanted to do the rest of his life. And we just happened to be the right place at the right time. And we hooked up Perfect. and he's great. So Rick said, and Rick had hired a hundred doctors to build a brand new hospital out of a cornfield in Round Rock uh, 15 years ago. And so he had a lot of experience in, in recruiting quality doctors. But what one way for us to do that is you look at a local reputation. That's kind of hard for the public to do because, you know, you talk to one doctor and every other doctor is good. Why? Because they're kind of circling the wagons, protecting each other. Um, but the thing that you can do is you can look at subspecialization. So an example of that. Um, there's podiatrists out there that do nothing but foot and ankle. Okay. There's orthopedists that do a broad range. They can do total joints to spine, to foot and ankle, to hand, to shoulder. And so in this regard, uh, we select surgeons who only, so for instance, our foot and ankle surgeon is an orthopedist who only works in foot and ankle. Okay. So what happens is he, uh, if any cases come to him from a referral source, their shoulder, hand, total joint, hip, you know, femur, fractures, anything like that, he'll refer those to his partners who focus in those areas. We have an orthopedic surgeon who only does trauma or only does, you know, broken bones and things. Um, we have a, an orthopedic surgeon that only does upper extremity. So that's hand, elbow, shoulder. We have a surgeon that only does total joints. We have a surgeon that does sports medicine. And these are all different surgeons. And so by looking at their subspecialty focus, you see that they're focusing on an area. Why is that important? Because that means they're doing more cases in that one area. Uh, they're doing cases in that one area and exclusively. And so that just means that if you go, if you have a foot and ankle problem and you go to uh, our foot and ankle orthopedist, he's done a lot of those cases. And so if you have a bunion or if you have an ankle problem, you can go to him and he's probably done hundreds that year. And it's that repetitiousness uh, and focus, subspecialty focus that right. is really important. So from the public's perspective, if you find a doctor who's subspecialty focused, that means that he's given up all the referrals for all that other stuff. That shows you that he's developed a reputation in that niche, in that small area. So for instance, if you have a spine problem, you wouldn't go to a general orthopedist. If, you, if you're a primary care doctor, your therapist, after going through PT and non-interventional things, if they recommend you go see somebody about spine, you wouldn't go see a general orthopedist. You'd go see an orthopedist who's fellowship trained in spine. And he focuses his practice on spine because it's complex and you need to keep up with that stuff. And so I think from a, a for the public, that's a really good way to start. Uh, I would always get second opinions. Always. They're not very expensive. If your plan pays for them, great. If they don't, what's a couple hundred bucks? A couple hundred bucks, right. And, right. And so, uh, or even a third opinion, you know, uh, if you may want to get a, an opinion from a, a doctor who's like super well-trained and been out of, uh, uh, out of school for five years, I'd say five years is kind of a, a good point. Um, or somebody that's been out for 25, 
and you may get two different opinions. Right. And so, um, and then talk about them with your primary care doctor. Um, I cannot say it more forcefully. If you have insurance, if you don't have insurance, I really don't care how you pay for your healthcare, but you need to have a fiduciary type relationship with your primary care doctor. And that's called direct primary care, DPC. Look it up in Google, DPC or DPC mapper, and you can find all the DPC doctors in your area. What it is, is you pay a subscription. My family pays $240 a month for all my wife, me, and our three kids, all of which are college age, to have a subscription. We can text the doctor 24 seven. We can get refills by texting. If we need to see the doctor the same day, we can. Why? Because he keeps his panel, his number of patients below a thousand. Most insurance primary care, it's five to 6,000 patients. They won't even know your name. No. Unless you're in a lot, right? But they won't know your name. As opposed to DPC, they'll know your name. Why is this important? Because you need that type of person to be thinking for you and taking that fiduciary role like, mm, I don't think you should go to that doctor. Why? Because they tend to bill a lot. Or maybe therapist was a big one. I had a, a back problem, a sciatica. And my direct primary care, Dr. Michael Garrett uh, here in Austin, told me, he said, go to this therapist because he's not one of those therapy groups that just bills 12 and then tries to get eight to 10 more. They don't try to extend the episode for their revenue basis. They, if it takes three sessions to get you better, you're going to get three sessions. Now, on my insurance, previous insurance, it was 75 bucks for me to go see a therapist. When I went to see uh, uh, the new therapist, uh, that I paid cash and I paid 125 bucks and they worked for me. Right. And so that is the kind of thinking you need to take. That's, that's the posture and the way you need to think about your healthcare. You need to take some ownership of it. Don't, you know, your employer and other people are providing the means to pay for some of this stuff, but you really need, you need to have an advocate on your side and having a good primary care doctor relationship. So if you're a complex patient, especially if you've got like some problems going on, you absolutely need somebody. I mean, everybody knows who's had kids, you know, it's like kid always gets sick on Saturday night or Sunday night. And then you're calling first thing on Monday morning to get an appointment. What happens? You can't get through the practice till like noon. And then they put you on Wednesday. And so your, your kid's sick, you're at home waiting to find out what's happening. And then usually by Wednesday, they're probably feeling better anyway, but it's just a bad system. Or you go to an urgent care and you pay, charge $500. So spend the $500 on a direct primary care doctor for the whole year, and then you get access 24-7. And we've talked about them and interviewed a lot of them on this podcast a lot. So our listeners and viewers should know them very well. And it's so affordable. And it's the... Uh, you know, not only is the direct primary care the good part is that you get care right away, but direct primary care doctors will also have access to people like you when they mm -hmm. need a procedure or a surgery and they know how to get it good quality, good service and affordable. That's right. So speaking of affordable, what is your most popular bundle and kind of explain what that bundle includes and then compare it to what the price would be tr in a traditional system. Okay, so. I'm putting you on the spot, I, but I know you know uh, it. That's okay. I know you know the answer. 
so so uh we just recently went through some price updates which usually means about 90 percent of them stay the same but there's usually a couple of them that change for whatever reason for sometimes it's doctor sometimes it's not usually doctor's facility but anyway so probably one of the most popular that we get and this is just symptomatic of a, of a culture that we've overeaten ourselves to near death is uh, a gallbladder removal which is called the laparoscopic cholecystectomy um laparoscopic means they'll come in two little holes use these tubes go in and take out your gallbladder and your gallbladder is on fire so it hurts a lot you've probably been to the er you've probably been to your primary care doctor and they're just like you know let's just go ahead and get that thing taken out and you know i'm, I'm overweight and at one point i probably had too much rich food in my life and wine and everything else so I'm probably a future lap coley guy. So it, it's pretty common. Um, that procedure for us, we do in a surgical hospital because our surgeon does a, a radio, a, an image of the gallbladder after the case uh, that is really important for confirming that he got everything mm -hmm. and that there was no damage done. And so that's like a huge preventative to, um, to the patient having to come back for some reason. So it, 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 it it's, you know, his, his surgical record is incredible. So it always turns up negative, but you know, he's like, this is just always, you know, putting the ribbon on the end. This is, makes it done. So, we do it in a surgical hospital. I think our total cost right now is about six thousand seven hundred fifty. Um, all bundled together. That's pre-op, peri-op, post-op, everything. Anesthesia, everything. Everything, everything. So what we we offer is a no balance bill guarantee. So there will never be, and occasionally one of our you know facility partners or anesthesia partners will or pathology even will send a bill to the patient, and we always tell them look, if you get a bill, call us. And we take care of it. So there is nothing that's going to happen during the episode that we're not going to be responsible for. No surprises. Transparency, nope. no surprises. Absolutely. 100%. And so um, that the comparison that I've seen locally, uh, we, we did an analysis for a local county uh, that's on United Healthcare. And their average cost in 20... 18 was $16,420. And the patient in that plan was paying a $5,000 max out of pocket. So, you know, you can imagine the patient's probably, you know, paying 5,000. So the plan was paying 11,000. Right. And so we, you know, and I would imagine it hasn't gone down any. So my guess is it's either flat or it's gone up a little or more. Um, but that, that, that is, pretty typical what we see um you know there are some procedures where we're marginally better i would say in terms of cost some hand procedures and things like that uh that the carrier networks uh can compete with us in terms of of, of the of overall cost but i what i try to explain to employers and, and people is that um with us you get the price up front um, if you ever want to get really, really upset, just if you need a surgery, just say to the doctor, okay, I want to pay cash. And then watch how everybody goes, uh, 
like yeah. you can talk to my back office here and they can tell you how much ours is but then they'll tell you who the anesthesia is you need to call them and then the facility and there's an implant i use so you need to call that guy you're left to do all that and then you call the facility and if it's a big system facility nowadays in the last 18 months or so people have more of cash prizes than they ever had before but still you'll be shocked at how much it is yeah if, if you could find the price at a facility, it'd be hard to find a price at a big facility. I think it'd be hard. And, you know, I want to back up too, because your lap Coley is 6,700 bucks. Hospitals was six hospital paid 16,000 or no, United Healthcare paid 16,000. But let's correct. remember the hospital probably billed 30 or 40. Yeah. Correct. Right. 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 So that's one thing that people need to realize too, is that, what they would pay versus what an insurance company pays is way different. That's why it's so important to have transparent pricing up front. Yeah, you bring up a really good point, Sean. And and generally speaking in our world, the more you pay for something, the better quality. That's like, you know, Mercedes versus uh, Chevy, right? So, you know, same kind of cars, you're going to pay a lot more for Mercedes. And we'd all say, yeah, that's okay. If you got the money and you want to do that, that's have at it. Uh, in healthcare, there are numerous studies that have been done that show that there's an inverse relationship between cost and quality. And that's just, I'm economics trained. And it's like, that's just kind of a, just a shocking market failure. Dr. Keith Smith talks about it a lot in terms of a pricing failure, which is a due to government intervention. So, um, that kind of premium in price in healthcare does not signal anything to do with quality. You need to go look at the quality, like we talked about earlier. Uh, look at yeah. the surgeon, right? And it's because healthcare doesn't operate in a free market in right. traditional traditionally, right? Well, you. If you don't have information on cost and quality or price and quality, there's no way for the for the consumer to move towards the higher quality, lower cost. So, so, so let's talk about while we as we get ready to wrap this show up. I want to hear a story that you have. Speaking of quality and speaking of price, especially. So, um, why is dialysis expensive? Well, dialysis is expensive. So I learned this I learned this a couple of years ago when I first got out of the healthcare system before Patrick and I started this company. Um, I was working with a guy who was building an all-risk health plan in, in, in South Florida. And I got the I, I was doing all the direct contracts with the providers to build out the direct contracting model. And sure enough, I got to talk to the nephrologist. And so the nephrologist, the actuary said they should have been paid like a buck twenty per member per month, <laughs> they got furious. They threw me out of their board meeting. And the reason why is because nephrologists don't, there, there's not many kidney problems out there other than dialysis. Uh, but the fact is that after 18 months on dialysis, the government takes over your cost. So Medicare takes over. And so what happened in the late 60s, early 70s, this is my understanding, I haven't talked to, to, to nephrologists, is that we used to have home dialysis. Why? Because Medicare paid for it. So there were companies out there creating at-home 
they bring sometimes in a van and they bring it to your house and they would give you the, the at-home dialysis. Well, it's obviously better for a patient to be staying at home, and especially in this day of COVID, right? Not getting out and because they're delicate patients. Um, and what happened was the Medicare was obviously lobbied because there's no reason to, to switch off something that was working. Um, and they said that they would never no longer pay for home dialysis. So at that point, all the big systems got involved. Hospital systems started doing dialysis, they had dialysis units. What's happened in the intervening, oh, wow, God, I'm getting old, 50 years, is that uh, the two companies have taken over the dialysis market. And that's DeVita and Fresenius. Yeah. And they've gone up and they've bought up the dialysis units at all the different hospitals around the country. So there's really just two options in any market you go to. There are very, very few independent dialysis units. And so they charge astronomical amounts. So you get dialysis, you're working for an employer and you have insurance. My understanding is that it's five figures and I'm talking like 50,000 plus per month. Some cases I've seen it up to $200,000 a month. And they're billing like crazy because they know at 18 months it flips onto Medicare and it's going to go down to the ground. And so their business model is predicated on being able to aggregate the market. Medicare is not paying for home dialysis. So there's very little interest in industry to create the technology, recreate the technology and business models to support home dialysis. And so because of what the government does, we've allowed two companies to create a duopoly and all that goes, all the bad that goes with that. They have, you know, basically carte blanche in making pricing decisions. Everybody has to go to them. There's no questions asked. You just shut up and get in line and pay the bill damn it. And if you don't, you don't get to come here and you die. So that's, if if you stay in medicine long enough and you talk to enough people, you turn over enough rocks and you talk to people, and we're talking right now, I, I told you earlier, we've got a maternity product we worked on and, and turning over the rocks in the NICUs and the maternal fetal medicine world was like an eye-opening experience for us. Now we're working on college, which is more aligned with your, your professional space. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, scorpions under the rocks. And so, you just you stay in medicine long enough and you'll see all these areas where usually due to government intervention. Well, I would like to have you on a, I'd like to have have you on again, Sean, and tell you and tell the story about the fetal maternal medicine because uh, our, our listeners and viewers need to know about that. And the oncology one, because those are both as those are both very expensive. Oncology gets very expensive. And maternal um, fetal medicine gets very expensive, and you turn over the rocks. I think um, people will be have their eyes open a little bit. So uh, we'll have you on again to discuss those things. Um, as we're wrapping this up, Sean, um, what do you have a passion for? What drives you? So I told my brother this when we got into business together in 2016. I said, "There's a there's a lot of different ways to make money in healthcare." A lot of people make a lot of money in questionable, in my opinion, questionable uh, 
ways. I don't want to be a part of adding to the cost. And I don't want to be a part of further destroying the doctor or provider patient relationship. Because this is this whole industry is going to crush our country. Yeah, it's crushing our country, but it's going to ultimately crush our economy. It's the ultimate the administrative state taken over. And so if entrepreneurs are allowed or are, are aggressive enough right now, a lot of entrepreneurship and healthcare is adding to the cost. Private equities, buying practices, adding to cost and so on. My passion is creating healthcare models. I say models, it's like healthcare. Yeah, I guess a model is the only word, but healthcare model where we can bring doctors and patients together or providers and patients together where they can work on getting the patient better without all the BS and everything that goes with the current system. So in our model, the doctors don't have any pre-offs, pre-certifications. We don't make them jump through flaming hoops. And then those flaming hoops are the things that if they don't jump through them, they don't get paid. They know up front what they're going to get paid. And they're going to get paid either same day or they're going to get paid within seven days. I've had not a single doctor call me in six years and ask for more money. That's right. symptomatic of the insurance companies continue to cut them. So I want to create the conditions where doctors and patients can be, can do what they're supposed to do. Well, just create the conditions so that doctors can take care of people better right. and pharmacists and nurses and therapists. You just add any, any situation where there's a care provider and a patient with something that needs help. I want to create the situation where I'm not hurting that I'm helping. And that's, you know, everything we're doing is about making it better for doctors and patients. Doctors well, and, and providers. Patients, right. And ultimately, if we make it as all healthcare providers, if we make it better for the patient, educate and empower patients to be proactive in their own health. And that includes financial, um, mm -hmm. not just taking care of themselves and their health, but also financially being responsible. Um, the market will take care of itself. And I talk about it in my book, Sickened, how the government ruined healthcare and how to fix it. And um, being a guest on our show, you'll you'll get a free copy. And it basically step there's a six step solution in that book on how to fix this problem that's bankrupting our country. And the first one is to put patients in charge, educate and empower patients to take care of their own health. And when those patients are in charge, they will pick the best doctors, the best pharmacists, when they're in charge, they will do that. Free markets work. It works for cars. It works for it works for hotels. It works for food. It will work for healthcare. As much as people say it won't, um, the governments, the politicians, and the lobbyists that have big healthcare are the ones that say it won't work, but it will, and it'll work better. Correct. I agree. So what is the best way to get a hold of you, Sean? Uh, you can check out our website, uh, texasmedicalmanagement.com. Uh, you can send an email to email at texasmedicalmanagement.com. If you want to reach me, it's Sean, S-E-A-N dot Kelly, K-E-L-L-E-Y at texasmedicalmanagement.com. Our phone number, that phone number that was on the screen there on the website is a, a phone number that Google puts up for 
tracking purposes, the, the real number is 512-275-6471. Um, just give us a call. That, that are, the people that will answer that are our surgery concierge team, and they will uh, help you find a solution for your problem. Well, thank you so much. We're all about solutions here. Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. And our goal is to educate and empower consumers to take charge of their health. And you have definitely helped us reach that goal today, Sean. Um, I'm excited to have you back on our show and talk about some of the other details of turning over some rocks, as you would say, to uh, let's bring some transparency to medicine so we can let consumers know what's really going on, because I think a lot of times they don't know. So that's part of our goal here. So um, thank you for being on. It was a pleasure, and I'm looking forward to having you on again. Great. Thank you so much, Sean. Take care. And thank everybody for listening and tuning in today, uh, Monday, 1230 to 1.30 Pacific Standard Time. We will have Dr. Michael Turner on our show. You don't want to miss it. He is going to talk about how to boost testosterone levels naturally. You don't want to miss it. Tune in to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, streaming live at the Moses Lake Professional Pharmacy um, Facebook page and my personal Facebook page and on all the podcast forums. So, don't forget about Rumble also. We are on Rumble. Um, please go subscribe to our Rumble channel. It is the only channel where we have never been censored. So tune into that. And as always, thank you for listening and watching.